0: be seated. Um, in the 1980s, Jimmy Swaggart was the preeminent televangelist uh, in the United States. There's, a, I think, a picture in there. As a child, I often remember seeing his face uh, on TV. Uh, we had several books uh, that were written by him uh, in our library, Jimmy Swaggart was, gifted, was a gifted speaker and perhaps uh, an even more talented musician and gospel singer. His ministry, at its peak, brought in $150 million per year. He was known particularly for preaching really hard against adultery and sexual immorality. He even went after other prominent TV evangelists of his time. He helped to expose the infidelity of a famous uh, televangelist named Jim Baker, and brought his ministry down. He also accused another prominent preacher, Marvin Gorman, of immorality, and also forced him out of his up-and-coming ministry. But then, in a made-for-Netflix plot twist, he got caught in the act of the very thing he condemned so strongly He was caught with a prostitute And there were pictures And then came the infamous apology And there is another picture Which you may have seen before Where he stands in front of the congregation And he says I have sinned against you And he starts weeping And um, guess what happened after this People started to judge him People were very quickly, very quick to judge Jimmy Swaggart. A People Magazine article, the subtitle of one article said this, the self-appointed judge of televangelists finds himself the penitent. A-, a quote from a woman said this, I am indignant, said a 47-year-old woman member of Swaggart's Assembly of God Church. How could he stand up there in the pulpit and preach against adultery, adultery, and promiscuity, when he was doing that kind of thing all this time, I thought, I I think he ought to stay out of the pulpit. Why are we so quick to judge others? Not only was Jimmy Swagger so quick to judge other televangelists, but when he fell the same way, people were very quick to judge him. Here in this passage we have a story of judgment. We have a story of judgment, we have a story of guilt, we have a story of shame. How do we respond to judgment? How do we respond to sin? And how does Jesus respond? And that's what I want to look at. There's three points that I want to make this morning. The first is that mankind leads with judgment. Jesus leads with grace. And grace leads to transformation. Those are the three points that I'm going to make. The first is mankind leads with judgment. Let me read again verses 53 through verse 6 of chapter 8. They each went to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him. And he sat down and taught them. So there's a big crowd of people here. In in the midst. Jesus is teaching as is his common practice. Then it says, The scribes and the Pharisees, verse 3, brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, placing her in the midst. They said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So, what do you say? They said this to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. Now, notice these men uh, place this woman in the midst of the whole assembly. Okay, they, They've caught her in the act. And, and if you can imagine, there's this, this shame there's this guilt that that she feels in their culture you know adultery was wrong and it was punishable by death and here they bring her in the midst of all these people in the midst of the religious leaders in the midst of the community that are all there to hear Jesus teach now have you ever had your hands caught in the cookie jar so to speak have you ever had that feeling like you just you you've been caught I know have, have you ever been driving speeding along right and and you look behind you you see lights flashing behind you and you hope to god like they're not for you they're they're just gonna you slow down right and then you hope they just pass you and get someone else but have you ever been in that time where you realize it's you and you pull over and 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 your face flushes with heat and you start sweating you're like oh my goodness Why me? And you know you're guilty. You know you were speeding. So it's not like this indignant sort of self-righteous thing. It's like, no, I was speeding. What am I going to say? And I think the worst thing about it is it's so public, right? Like, I just feel like I'm sitting there, oh, I'm by the side of the road, and I feel like every car that's going by is, like, slowing down and, like, looking right at and, like, shaking their head. Like, you get what you deserve, like it's like the old Southwest Airlines commercials. You, you just want to get away. Like you don't want to be there. Just imagine that that sense of guilt, that sense of ah, yeah, I did it, and now every everyone can see it. Everyone sees my guilt. Everyone sees my shame. But the problem is, we do the same thing. Like, have you ever been in that same car driving along? And you see someone just zip by on the left side, and you. to yourself, man, if there ever was a cop that should have been here, they should be here to catch that person because they deserve it. Or someone else speeds by and you're like, I just wish that they would get what they deserve. They shouldn't speed, right? And so we do it both ways. We don't like when we get judgment. We feel, oh, I don't want this. But we also are quick to say that other people deserve judgment for the same things that we do. And there's a lot of that going on in this story Right here. Here in this passage, the religious authorities seem almost excited about the opportunity to, to judge this woman. They say, we, We've caught her in the act. Here she is. And they, they don't really care about her, they're just bringing her up. And in fact, we understand that their motives is really to trap Jesus. That's behind it. But they're so quick to judge this woman, they don't care about her well being. And so what they're trying to do, this trap that they're setting up, which is a pretty impressive trap, by the way. Basically, what they're saying is, the law says this. To st- if a woman commits adultery, stone her and put her to death. And, and that specific method was for women, who, women and men who were engaged. So, so she's not actually married. If you look at the law, there's a difference between those the punishment for those who are already married and the punishment for those who are not yet married but engaged. There there really wasn't a, a concept of, of a completely single woman in their day. So they were usually spoken for. So this is a woman who was spoken for, committed to a particular man, and she is sleeping with another man. Okay? And so now what they're saying is, this is what the law says. What do you say? And what they're trying to do is pit Jesus against the jewish law on one hand and at the other hand the roman law which you can just go around kill people unless it was roman authorities who dictated someone should be killed so jesus has to pick do i side with the religious leaders in my religion and say yes she should be killed and therefore maybe oppose roman law and also risk his popularity that law just as you can imagine was not popular like no one, they didn't really practice that too much. So Jesus, if he says, yeah, she should be stoned, now he's opposing Rome and he's also risking his popularity. But if Jesus says, no, she shouldn't be stoned, then all of a sudden you're looking at a rabbi, a teacher of Jews who's ignoring the law. And so it's a pretty good trap. He's caught between a rock and a hard place. But as we'll see, Jesus is pretty good at getting out of traps what I want us to look at here is who do you identify with do you identify with a woman and her shame and her guilt do you identify with the re- religious leaders who are so quick to bring judgment on this woman what is the goal of judgment that's a good question You might say justice, right? Justice is one goal of judgment, and and that's not a bad thing. We have laws. We want justice. We want to live in a world that's just, and when people do things to hurt other people, we want justice. We want judgment. But is that the only goal of judgment? Should it be the only goal of judgment? What about a goal that says, I want people to not do that which is judgeworthy worthy in the first place. In other words, transformation or reform. When we're too quick to judge, we cut off the possibility of transformation or reform. And, and, and what Jesus is showing us, what he's going to show us here as we move into the second point, is that there is a way to, to still have judgment but but care more about transformation than someone's immediate punishment. And and Jesus does that by leading with grace. Leading with grace. Jesus doesn't lead with judgment. He leads with grace so that there's an opportunity for transformation and and reformation. So that's what we're going to see in the second point. Jesus leads with grace. Verse 7, As they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who was without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Now, remember, they didn't, they just brought the woman up. And this is interesting. Because the man who she committed adultery with is just as guilty. They only bring the woman up. Now Jesus says, whoever is without sin cast the first stone. Now some commentators have said that Jesus is not talking about sin in general. He's talking about the same crime that she committed. So, Jesus is basically going back to the Old Testament law and saying the person who's supposed to throw the first stone is the, the people who witnessed the crime but who weren't part of the crime. And so what some commentators have said is, said is that when Jesus is saying whoever is without sin cast the first stone, he's basically saying, okay, whoever saw what happened and, and hasn't committed the same crime, throw the first stone. And it's likely that what's happening as, as the men start to walk off one by one, older to the younger, is that they understand they're guilty, not just of any sin, but of the same exact sin that they're condemning the woman for, which is interesting. Like, they, they don't bring the man up, because why? That would hit too close to home, right? They say, we're gonna bring the woman, we can ignore our own sin, not bring the man up. We'll just bring the woman. And Jesus says, okay, you who haven't committed that crime, you who haven't committed sin, throw the first stone. It forces them to self-examine their own heart where they're at themselves and and this is this is also god and jesus graciously dealing with judgmental people he doesn't immediately get in their face and say you're wrong he asks a question or he doesn't even ask a question he says all right go ahead you're right throw the first stone but who he is he who is without sin like go first Jesus has a brilliant method of getting out of that trap. He affirms the law, but he's at the same time pointing out their hypocrisy in a way that they can see it for themselves. He's opening their eyes. And, they're, they're, and, and you know, to be honest, they're, they're in a, a moment of honesty. They're basically looking at and reflecting out. you know what? I've done the same thing. And I know, and there's a little bit of, I think there's a little bit of me too stuff going on in here you know back then culturally and, and even today it's much easier for men to get away with sexual sin than women it's it's still more taboo for women to engage in sexual sin than men and so men could go out and do their thing and not get caught because the men held the power and so they would hide it who cares or we do it we're in power we'll enforce the rules for women but we won't enforce the rules for men. And Jesus speaks just the right words to cut through that facade, to cut through their their disobedience and say, look at your own heart. You're doing the same thing. And in that case, they all walk away. But Jesus also deals graciously with the woman. After they all leave, Jesus says this to the woman, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Which is a really important statement. Neither do I condemn you. Jesus is saying this. Number one, some people have the wrong view of God. They think of God as like this person in the sky who's just waiting for for us to mess up so he can bring his Thor-like hammer upon us and squash us like he's just like setting up traps so that we'll make a mistake and God's just gonna get us and and smite us and send his wrath towards us and that is not the picture of God that we have in scripture at all Yes, God does do judgment. God does have wrath, but he leads with grace. In other words, his higher goal is not that you would be judged, but that you would be saved. And that's why we get the verse in John 3, verse 16, which everyone knows, but the verse after it is equally as important. Verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life verse 17 for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him that's the gospel God is his purpose is to save not to condemn He will condemn, but he leads with grace. He leads with salvation. He pleads. And this is a pattern that we see throughout Scripture. This is not just for this woman. Even in this gospel, we saw him do that with the Samaritan woman at the well. He knew her sins, he knew her promiscuity, and yet he still says, I have for you living water. Come and drink. And even when she knows he knows about her past, he still says, Come and drink. I'm your savior. The one that you are talking about, I'm here now to save you. And she's freed in that moment. She's freed because God sees her at her worst and she's accepted. And later, in John 5, you get the man at the pool, the pool of Siloam, who's paralyzed for 38 years. And Jesus says, do you want to be made well? And he gives this long excuse, right? And And Jesus says, Take up your mat and walk (laughs) And later Jesus comes back and says See you are well Go, Go and sin no more That a worse thing doesn't happen to you Which leads us to believe that Something about his sin Caused the predicament in the first place So there again There's the pattern of Jesus leading with grace Before judgment And that's the pattern that we see That's what God is about Jesus leads with grace. Now, oh, one more thing. This is really important. So Jesus is not here to condemn, but to save. The second thing is Jesus has the power to forgive sin. This is really important. When he says, neither do I condemn you, Jesus is asserting his authority to forgive you, which is important because imagine, uh, imagine John and Angie. Imagine uh, John sins against Angie, Okay? And I go up to John, and, and I go up to John and I say, John, I forgive you. That's odd, right? Why is it odd? He hasn't offended me. He has, he's committed no offense against me. I don't have the power or the authority to forgive John if he sins against someone else. So when Jesus says, neither do I condemn you, he's assuming that the offense is against him, which is true if he's God. All sin is first and foremost an offense against God. And so what Jesus is saying is I have the power because I am God to forgive sins. You've offended me and I'm forgiving you. Jesus is asserting his authority, his ability to forgive when he says neither do I condemn you. What do we learn from how Jesus responds? We should recognize our own need for grace and extend grace ourselves. We think back to Jimmy Swaggart. What if he had truly examined his own life before he was so quick to judge? Sometimes our exuberance to judge others harshly for some particular sin is indicative of the very sin that we struggle with. There was a quote from Jimmy Swaggart's aunt, Aunt Edna, she said this when reflecting on Jimmy Swaggart's fall. She said, maybe maybe that's why he preached so hard against sexual immorality for so long, because he knew what a grip it could get on you. Jimmy's daddy said that this might help Jimmy learn not to be so critical of others. I think maybe this will make Jimmy a better man a more humble minister. Maybe now he won't be so hard on people. It just goes to show that none of us is so high that we can't fall. And maybe that's what God is trying to show us with this. Maybe that is what God is trying to show us over and over again in Scripture. Maybe that's what Jesus meant when he said in Matthew chapter 7, judge not that you be not judged for with the judgment you pronounce you will be judged and with the measure you use it will be measured to you why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye but do not notice the log that is in your own eye when we can first examine our own lives and recognize that that we fall short in the same way that we judge others, when we can understand our own need for grace, our own need for salvation, then we can understand how to extend grace to others. We can be motivated to extend grace and forgiveness to others, but only when we can understand that. And so what Jesus is teaching us is examine yourself examine our own hearts before we're so quick to to get angry at our spouses or get angry at our friends or get angry at our boss for something that you know they should know not to do think about how you failed to do that same thing or that how you've done that same thing that you're so mad at the other person for what jesus is trying to show us another way saying look at yourself first and see if then you will not understand your need for grace And then see if you will not be able to give grace when you realize that. There's still, though, an unsettling question that needs to be asked. There's something scandalous about the grace that Jesus offers. If Jesus is so quick to forgive sin, sin that deserves death, then is Jesus really serious about sin? Is is Jesus just sweeping sin under the table or under the rug? Does he care about obedience? The answer is yes. Jesus does care about obedience. Jesus is serious about sin. And that's precisely why he responds with grace. Because grace is what actually leads to transformation. Which leads to a life that is free from sin. That's why he leads with grace. And my... Third point is that grace leads to transformation. Grace leads to transformation. Verse 10 and 11. I'll read it again. I'll read it again. Sorry. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on sin no more. Now, Some people take grace, and they use it as a means to sin. Say, okay, God's gracious towards us. That means I don't get what I deserve, and therefore, I can do whatever I want, right? God's just always going to take care of it, and so they use grace. They, they, They interpret God's grace as a means to do whatever we want, live however we want, to disobey God or obey God, whatever we want to do. We use God's grace to do that. So much so that even Paul was accused of of using grace in this way. But Paul says, no, that's not what grace is for. God's grace is for us to change. God's grace is for us to change. Now, God doesn't, or Jesus doesn't ignore her sin." Now, I'll explain the grace piece in in just a second. He doesn't say, neither do I I condemn you, period. He says, neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. So he's making this connection to how she should live life to what has just been given to her, This, this forgiveness. I've forgiven you, so therefore, go and sin no more. So Jesus is not ignoring her sin. He's saying, what you've done was sinful, but go and sin no more. Respond out of grace in in changing your life, in repentance. That's what this idea of repentance means. You change your mind from what the previous way you thought and and wanted to pursue life, and you go towards God. That's what repentance is. It's a uh, a 180. Now, Jesus says also, or Paul says in Romans 12, chapter 2 verse 4, God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. And so in God's economy of of the tools that he employs, he uses grace and kindness and forgiveness as the ways to produce in us life transformation. That's the point. How many of you have done something completely dumb and, and, and haven't suffered the consequences for it? Right? You you, you you you're like, oh, this was so stupid. Lord, please don't let me suffer the consequences that I know I should suffer. Lord, if you would just let me escape this one time. When I was um a teenager, first started driving, I discovered I had the propensity to fall asleep while driving. Um in the mid afternoon, especially, after school, after school's out. Senior in high school, drive home, conk. I discovered that. I realized that at some point. And so I, I knew better. If I was tired, I shouldn't drive. Like, I figured that out. Like, not just for my sake, but for other people's sake on the road, right? And, and yet, I chose to still drive knowing when I was tired. And I discovered one day what the bumps on the side of the freeway are for. Because I literally woke up to boom. I was like, oh my goodness, what was that? And I realized I had been asleep for maybe a few seconds. And the car drifted over into the bumps on the side of the freeway. I said, okay, thank you, God. You saved me. I could have died. I was going 60 miles an hour on the freeway asleep. And, and, and so I was thankful. And you would think I would never do it again. But eight years later... Again, I was driving on the freeway after work, and I woke up to a boom, and that was me hitting the car right in front of me. Thankfully, it was slower traffic. It was, was, you know, after work, and so I wasn't going 60 miles an hour, but if I was, that could have been nasty. And the moral of that story is not, I can drive however I want to drive because God will take care of me. That's not the moral of the story. The moral of the story is God was gracious to let me still live. I should never put myself in that position again. That's the moral of the story. That's the same thing with grace. God doesn't always give us what we deserve, not so that we can continue in our obstinance, not so that we can continue in our rebellion, in our stubbornness. That's what I was, stubborn, thinking, oh, I can stay awake. But so that we would recognize, no, God saved me. I should follow him. He wants life for me. That's what God is saying. When he saves us from those circumstances, he's saying, I don't want you to be judged. I don't want you to be condemned. I want you to be saved. I want life for you. That's what he's doing. And the only way that Jesus can do that, the only reason why he can offer forgiveness is because he paid for those sins. He judges every sin that you and I have committed, past, present, and future, in the person of Jesus, so that he can extend grace, he can extend forgiveness, because it's already been paid for, and so we don't always get what we deserve, and that's God's grace for us, and that's meant to be a reminder for us, follow him, his way is better, his way is good, his way is life for us. My response when I didn't die driving was extreme gratitude. I've changed, hopefully. I have five-hour energy now. I have a wife who will bug me every hour. Are you okay? I I put things in place now. Or, uh, Lord willing, I don't fall asleep driving again. But this motivation applies to all kinds of sins. And here in this passage, we're talking about sexual sin. Adultery, fornication, pornography, prostitution, sexual fantasies. Whatever it is you know you have struggled with or are struggling with, Jesus died for those things. And Jesus is gracious to us even in the midst of those things. The Lord knows I've felt at times in my life, I've been part of that list. And God is being gracious to us that we don't always suffer the consequences immediately for our sin. But he's doing that so we would turn from it, so so that we wouldn't continue to walk in it. He wants us to recognize that we can walk away by his power towards the life that he offers us some like Jimmy Swaggart have to learn the hard way and it, but even that's God's grace sometimes God will say okay I've given you grace I've given you no consequence let me put in something here right let me put in let me put in a little bump okay it's it's, it's it, you weren't crashing in at 60 miles an hour you're crashing in at 15 or 20 let that be a wake-up call yeah there's some cost there's some damage but even that's God's grace. He, as long as you have breath, as long as you have life, it's God's grace to say, wake up. He has something better for us. He has himself that he's giving to us. He's given for us. He died for our dumb decisions. God doesn't make light of sin at all. All sin is judged in the person of Jesus. That's why God can extend forgiveness. That's why we don't always get what we deserve because jesus paid for it and god's grace through jesus is meant to show us the way to life let's not get caught up in judgment and in shame and in guilt but let us get caught up in the scandalous grace of god let me pray for us father i thank you for your grace I thank you that you lead with grace. That you implore us to, to trust in you, to follow you. Lord, that you, you don't just condemn us outright and write us off. But Lord, you plead with us. Everyone who's here, Lord, you, you are pleading with us to follow you, to trust in you, to walk with you. In new life that you give us through your son. And so I pray, Lord, that wherever we're at, Lord, if if there are folks in here struggling, walking in sin that they've hidden, Lord, walking in disobedience, I pray that you would convict us, Lord, not by fear or judgment, but by your goodness, that we would understand and believe, Lord, that even in the midst of our sin, you accept us and that you beckon us to come and drink, to come and drink of your living water that we would have everlasting life. So Lord, help us to believe that message and to come to you, Lord, wherever we're at, and to acknowledge, to examine ourselves before you and to say, Lord, I know I've, I've fallen. I've sinned against you. I've walked away. Lord, help me to come back to you. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your forgiveness and the salvation that you give through Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Uh, We also at this point uh, celebrate communion.